Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast. It is April 23rd, 2021, and this is our 62nd episode. It's a beautiful day in Denver, and how are you today, David? I'm doing well. I got my second vaccine dose yesterday, and I think it's just placebo, but they say you feel like crap afterwards. I always feel better than normal. (laughs) My first dose and my second dose, I just... Uh, I think it's the optimism of knowing that things might return to normality that makes any side effects. It's, it supersedes any side effects of the vaccine, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, you feel safer. You feel like, okay, my body is getting, uh, uh, is doing its thing to, uh, uh, prepare itself and protect itself from this pandemic. Yeah. I think the psychological benefit of having the vaccine outweighs any negative physical side effects that I may be experiencing. So I would say that on net, I feel better than normal. That's great. I think we're all vaccinated and I think we're all feeling much better for it too. Mm-hmm. Because we want to protect ourselves, but also we want to protect people around us. And so a lot of vaccination uh, is partially you, but also people around you. Yeah, it's true. Uh, it's just being thoughtful. And uh, and I was in a store the other day, and this this guy was not wearing a mask, and uh, and nobody was challenging him, uh, but everybody was wearing a mask but him. It's kind of like, uh, does he not understand, or does he not care, or uh, that I don't know. So uh, maybe it could be out of ignorance; uh, they don't know that it's how important it is, uh, or maybe uh, out of uh, just d- difference. Mm-hmm. Indifference. Yeah, but, but I I'm glad. We're, I but we we wear our masks and we uh, we're vaccinated and we feel good. Yeah, I mean, I got vaccinated because I'm not scared like all those people that aren't getting vaccinated. Um, I know that they're scared. I know that, you know, the thought of a little needle prick is is too much for them to bear. But I would just say, you know, if you're going down that route and you're sort of researching reasons why you shouldn't get the vaccine, I would just say, don't be a pussy. Just man up and get the vaccine. <laughs> I remember when I was young, uh, someone asked me, uh, what, is it, what does it mean to be a man? Going from a boy to a man. I said, well, I don't know. Maybe a, a, an easy answer, a simple answer is knowing the right thing to do and then doing it. Mm-hmm. That's being a man. So this, this macho stuff about, uh, you know, and, and so, and women too, being a woman. Just knowing the right thing to do and then doing it. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that's not easy to do. Sometimes it's not easy to know. Sometimes it is easy to know, but it's hard to do. you got to do both. Yep. The same guy in college that pressured you into taking a beer bong is the one that's too scared to get the vaccine. So, uh, you know, take <laughs> vaccine hesitancy with a grain of salt. We have a very interesting topic for today. It's something that you talk about all the time, and I found an article that sort of I think it's going to support your generally held belief, which is why I chose to talk about it. Because a lot of times you think something's fantastic just because you agree with it. So we'll see what they have to say. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Yeah. However, when I read this and I says, I don't know what it says. I haven't read this article yet. Neither have I. We're going to read it together. All together. We're going to read it together. Mm -hmm. But uh, I got a feeling that that I'm going to agree with what they're saying. But I'm also going to disagree with how far into it they go. And uh, I think their conclusions, I think I might have broader conclusions of what they do. So we'll see. Because yes. they're, 
They're looking at uh, uh, Sophie Ruddick and Ryan Craig uh, wrote this. Uh, who is the... Uh, it's TechCrunch. Uh, TechCrunch. So these are reporters, and they, and they hear the, the, the story, and they give the report, you know. But, uh, but as you say, I'm in education, so I've been doing this for decades. And, uh, and this is industry-specific to tech jobs. So yes, uh, it's called since colleges are failing to prepare students for tech jobs, it's time to bring back apprenticeships. Well, you've been talking about sort of industry developing courses of study for individuals that they're going to hire. So instead of bachelor's degrees, you could have people that do very well on their SATs or, you know, in high school or they've had a few years of professional experience and they de demonstrate aptitude. They don't need a bachelor's degree. They take a six month apprenticeship or something with the company to learn the exact skills that the company wants. And yeah, they may not have a well-rounded liberal arts education, but they have the exact skills they need to perform in a job. Yes, and I think education, if that happens, and it is moving in that direction, there's gonna be a lot more pressure on the uh, uh, K through 12, or nine through 12, the high schools, uh, to prepare them with liberal arts. Mm -hmm. uh, because in order to do well in a tech job and to well in the tech industry, uh, you do need liberal arts uh, uh, capabilities. Mm -hmm. So they're not they're not independent of one another. They support one another. Anyway, let's get into it. Okay, we can get into it. Um, I do want to say also that this is my prognostication. Um, so yes, colleges are very expensive. For a computer science degree, you'll be spending you know, for a good computer science degree, at least 80 grand, right? 20 grand a year. Back of the envelope. Um, <laughs> more, more likely you'll be 100 grand in debt by the time you finish. And that's a burden for someone that's 22 years old and has never worked a day in their life to have 100 grand in debt. Um, and that's, that's lowballing it. I think for some good programs, some high-end programs, you'd be 200 grand in debt. That's a lot of money to owe, you know, at 22 years of age. So you better hope that the computer science education you've gotten, or whatever education you've purchased, will be able to afford you the earning power to pay that back. And I think this article is also going to go into, in addition to the four-year degree model, there are a lot of coding boot camps out there. Come here for six weeks and learn to be a coder. And I don't think those are a great model either. I think they may say you take the coding boot camp, you take the four-year computer science degree, and a good middle ground might be companies doing apprenticeships with people and then deciding if they want to hire them after the apprenticeship is over. And I, th I do think that's a viable solution. It's the way that things have been done throughout antiquity. You know, In the 1500s, if you wanted to be a barrel maker, you have to go study with a barrel maker. Uh, so it does make sense. We've done it before. We could do it again. So should we get into the article? Okay. Okay. You can always tell a system is broken when you change the inputs and the outcomes don't improve. Any software engineer will tell you that. Using this metric, it's clear the United States antiquated higher education system is truly broken. Overpriced, underperforming, the system is failing on two key fronts. Addressing racial inequalities and closing our own our country's growing tech skills gap. For all the changes made to the system to welcome people of color into the classroom, the outcomes in terms of wealth, equality distribution, and representation are worse than ever. 
Uh, let me get a little bit more. On average, black college graduates owe 25000 more in student debts than their white peers. Worse still, four years after throwing their caps in the air, 48% of black graduates owe an average of 12.5% more than they borrowed in the first place. A labor market built on degree requirement has little hope of correcting course. Okay, I mean, I thought this was going to be about apprenticeships, not about uh, racial inequality. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, but let's keep... It's very interesting, but that is very true. Uh, diversity, equity, and, and inclusion is extremely important today uh, across the nation. Mm-hmm. And would you say, not talking about your specific institution, talking in general... Because you really got those words out of your mouth pretty darn quickly. Diversity, equality, and inclusion, equity. Um, so it sounds like you may have had those told to you in meetings that you spent at your institution. Would you say the appearance of doing enough to provide diversity, inclusion, and equity is as important as actually providing diversity, inclusion, and equity? You want to no. appear as if you're doing enough. No, no, because it hides it hides it, it it hides the real solutions. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I don't think it is good. No, and, but, uh, and, but but do you think there's something to that? Like, let's do this because oh. it can be our our masthead. We can say, look at what we're doing for diversity, inclusion, and equity, and it's performative or it plays better, but it doesn't actually solve the problem. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and that's why I say that it's not going to work. Uh, that's true. Uh, it's kind of like uh, when you uh, let, let's not talk about universities, <laughs> but let's talk uh, an analogy in business. Like when you have a problem, let's hire someone and put them in charge and give them the title solution of this problem. And then they put them here and they point to them. And they let them do their thing. And as long as they don't really interfere with everything else that's happening, they just point to them and says, see what we did, see what we did, see what we did. And that person then says, anything that goes wrong, you blame them. Mm -hmm. And everything doesn't really change. It yes. doesn't change. I think a good example of this, so because, yeah, you probably don't want to throw any universities under the bus because you work for a university. But it, it reminds me of back in 2015, 2016, um, Wells Fargo was using predatory tactics on their customers to just extract as much money from them as possible. And it turns out that of the 20 predatory tactics they'd selected, several of them were illegal. And they got caught with their hand in the cookie jar. And they said, oh, we're sorry. And they paid a multi-million dollar fine. And it looked bad for them. So without changing their culture, without really cleaning house, they launched an ad campaign. Wells Fargo reestablished 2015. And I'm thinking to myself, it's the same guys and gals that were screwing you over for the past 10 years. They're still in all the upper management positions. Like, you can't just run an ad and say, reestablish, we're dedicated to, to the customer again, even though we sort of forgot to be for the last 20 years. And now, without really changing course at all, we're reestablished. And it's like, you can say that, but doing it is something completely different. Yes. Policy, uh, you, you can't, well, there's another saying too, you can't legislate morality. And, and a lot of 
diversity, equity, and inclusion has to do with the culture. And the culture has to change from within. Mm -hmm. And uh, and also, it has to change from within, and the change has to start from the top down. Mm -hmm. And so you have the top down, bottom up, they both have to be there together. And when they come together, then you're going to have, you'll be very, I'm, I am a very, very strong advocate of the power of the of of a person of people of humanity mm-hmm. that if you respect all people and all cultures and all backgrounds and all ethnicities and you pull out the good in all them oh well you're going to have something light years above what you ever had before and i think uh, the lack and trying to whitewash uh diversity equity and inclusion trying to whitewash that with actions uh undermines the culture mm-hmm and you, they don't change the culture. Also, you know, you can point to these statistics as lack of equity, but you know, uh, and uh, this I don't really want to sound racist or anything, but let's get into it, and I'll throw caution to okay. the wind. On average, black college graduates owe twenty five thousand more in student debt than their white peers. That's not good. We're still four years after throwing their caps in the air. Forty eight percent of black graduates owe an average of twelve point five percent more than they borrowed in the first place. Oh. Never mind. I, I read that wrong. I thought they owe 12.5% more than white students. Their, their principal or plus interest, Right. their total debt has, as the, the bottom line payment is larger than it was four years after they graduate. I, but that's true. That's true with anything you borrow. So it's going to be more when you yeah. start borrowing these things. Yeah. At the beginning, your interest will outstrip. Uh, well, I, okay. So a lot of this is. Uh, looking past the college experience, the unemployment rate stands at nearly 10%, compared to 5.5. Well, a typical black American family has eight times less wealth than a white family. This coupled with the fact that black people make up just 4.1% of Russell 3000 board members, I guess it's like Fortune 500 or something, uh, compared with 13.4% of the population. I, I mean, these statistics are fine. Um, I don't want to argue the statistics. I don't really want to d- debate lack of equity, I want to get to the part where they talk about apprenticeships. <laughs> um, well, also, they have a sentence in there. A labor market built on degree requirements has little hope of correcting course. Okay. Uh, well, that mentality of a labor market built on degree requirements, uh, maybe that was back in the 50s, 40s and 50s. And that's probably true. There's a sense of it to be true, uh, but it's not so much degree requirements. The degree just just certifies that you know a material, okay. Uh, and the other thing too, just because you know the what I'm, we haven't gotten into the article yet, but I, uh, there again, I may be jumping ahead, David, and, mm-hmm. and if so, I'll we have to read the article. But uh, uh, knowing how to uh, operate in the world is much more than skills much more than just skills oh i can do that yeah you can do it you can do it right you can do it wrong you can you need you need the liberal arts you need the education along with it mm-hmm. the question is how do you how do they come together and how do you have both and when do you need what you know and so uh, the other thing too is that uh what this might be getting into here is that they are hiring they want to hire skills they want to hire results well, companies don't want to hire that. They want to hire people. 
They don't hire resumes. They don't hire ability. They hire people with the ability because the people make those skills and ability valuable. And so, so I don't think universities are going away, but they're not going to be the same way they are today. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't, so yeah, as you say, I have, I have a lot of <laughs> uh, uh, passion in this area. I mean, I, I look at these arguments and it's like, yes, that's true. There's a lack of equity, equality, whatever. I don't know the words. I don't know the buzzwords. But um, yeah, if you graduate with 150000 in debt and you don't start your payments until four years later, you will owe more than you did when you graduated. You know, and, the side, and the sidebar says, well, college, that's true, David. I mean, I'm not going to argue with the statistics. What I will argue with is, well, what do the statistics mean? What What is, what is going to be your conclusion from those premises? And your conclusion might go really astray from what, what the actual conclusions conclusions should be. Mm-hmm. And like the sidebar. But I mean, I'm looking at a labor market built on degree requirements has little hope of correcting course. And then the next paragraph, black people make up just 4.1% of Russell 3000 board members compared with 13.4% of the population. Well, my question is how many of those 4.1% have a college degree? My guess is 99%. You know, if you've made it to the board, like you probably had a college degree. And if you're on a board of a Russell 3000 corporation, I don't even know what that means, but... I'm assuming that you have a position that allows you to pay off your student loans because you're on the board of a Russell 3000 corporation. Um, so, yes, there's a disparity in the percentage of board members to the percentage of the population. But I guarantee you that most of those board members do have participated in a labor market built on degree requirements. And that's the reason why they're a board member. You see what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. And also, I, I agree with you, too. Also, in addition to that, how many of that 4.1% had their path laid out for them by their parents and their family, even though they were black? Yeah, they had uh, a lot of help from their community or their immediate family or extended family. To, uh, I mean, yeah. So... We're, ta- we're talking about uh, ability of all, of everyone, no matter rich, poor, black, white, uh, no matter where you are, uh, no matter, it doesn't matter. Does everyone have an equal chance of, uh, of uh, uh, being successful in, in, in the United States? So I guess the thing is... Um... If someone has a family where education is not important, or if someone is has a family where the resources to send someone to college, should you take them away from their family and put them with a family where they have the resources to send someone to college because everyone deserves a fair chance? No, no, I, no, no but you see what I'm saying? It's like some people they're not born with the same uh, they're not born into the same culture. They're not born into the same type of family that might see education as a path to success. They might see something completely different as a path to success, and that might... uh, See, if you optimize for equity, well, 13.4% of this population is black, but only 4.1% of the board members. That means we need to add 9%, you know, 8.7%. Like, 
And that doesn't track for me because that's I don't think that the population should be a perfect representation of um, everything ever. You know, if I'm going to go to a, a neurosurgeon and 40% of neurosurgeons are Asian, even though Asians represent 12% of the population, I could say, I know that you're the most qualified neurosurgeon, but I would prefer that we have racial equity in neurosurgery. I don't, I, you know what I, I mean? Um, uh, well, well, what I say, when I say that, David, I'm saying opportunity to have op, everyone should have the opportunity. And just because you're from uh, a family or from a culture, I'll say a culture, from a culture that supports education, and there are cultures that support education. Education is, is respected, it's revered. It's like, you're gonna go to college, you're gonna get a degree, you're gonna do this, you're gonna do that. But then there's other cultures that says, don't, nah, that's, no, you're gonna, you're, you're gonna get a job, you're gonna get married, you're gonna have 12 kids by the time you're 19 years old. And there are cultures out there like that. Uh-huh. But the point is, that I'm trying to trying to make, is that it's not from your culture. That culture will uh, influence you in different directions. But but you should have equal opportunity for everyone to say, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I want to get an education. I want to get a degree. I want to go to grad school. Oh, really? What's that? It says, it's more schooling, Dad. And they go, oh, well, I don't know. I don't understand what you're doing. But yes, I have the opportunity to do this, and I want to do it. And I'm going to do it. That opportunity is what I'm saying, equality. Everyone mm-hmm. has the same opportunity. Mm-hmm. And we have to, and I teach, actually, I believe the knowledge of education should be universal and it should be free. But the mentorship of universities, the, the, the coaching, the apprenticeships, showing you how to implement it in different types of industries, that's what needs to be done. And you can't learn something, you can't learn everything from a book. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't learn everything from, from a, a, a website. You have to be boots on the ground to really understand what's happening. And you have to people mentor you. There's where the universities come in. And you can, I know my area. I know my area really well. And people can read a book about what I, what I know. But if we sit here and we work through things together, I'll show you things that the book can't tell you because they don't know every problem in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't either, but I know how to solve problems just like those. So it's not about just knowledge. It's That should be free. The universities have to bring the right thing to the table. The apprenticeships is only one thing. A lot of a lot of programs do have apprenticeships called internships, uh, and that's perfectly fine. And those are good if they're done right. But the word is not what's important. It's what's embedded in that word of coaching people on how to solve these things and you can do that even in a course you don't need it in a in a in a, in a classroom i mean you don't need it in an apprenticeship uh, or an internship uh and what i was saying before i guess i'm getting way ahead here is that that if universities would partner with industries and say we will bring to the table the ability to tell them all of the knowledge you bring the problems together and then all of a sudden 
uh, we can partner together. And that's my thesis uh, for the future, mm -hmm. uh, where universities partner with different, uh, especially professional schools. And that does not mean that those people do not have liberal arts educations. I think they need, everybody needs a liberal arts education. Uh, I, I know my education was much more in the sciences, and I regret that. I wish I had more liberal arts education. And I, and I do reading now uh, a little on my own. Okay, I could go on and on, but I'll throw it back to you, David. Okay, yeah, we'll go back to the article. I guess what I'm saying is I thought this was going to be, oh, I didn't, I had the article up the whole time. Uh, I thought this was going to be an article about apprenticeships, and it's been only about racial injustice. And I feel like this is my just gut reaction. I got thrown off a little bit by the opening paragraphs because I feel like a world in which more apprenticeships are stressed than four-year degree programs is good for all races. Like, it may help to to lower racial inequity. But I think that a talented uh, person, regardless of race, could benefit from internship programs in tech, if that makes sense. And so it's just weird that the first four paragraphs of an article about inter uh, apprenticeships are about statistics of the deficits between white students and black students. That's just That's just sort of surprising to me. Okay. Well, let's throw in uh, Asian students. Let's throw in Native American students. You know, let's throw in Latino students. Mm -hmm. Why is it white and black? Uh, this, the statistics are there, but let's broaden those statistics and show uh, a, a broader picture here. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think uh, the the disparity between the, the white and black, I think that is so, so central that they actually, the, the African-American uh, community uh, is, is leading the charge. They're opening up these doors, but then there's a lot of others that need to benefit from that as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, for how, 4.1% of Russell 3000 board members compared to 13, what percent of Russell board members are Native American? Yeah. I know in universities you'll have, oh, there's only 20%, there's 30% of, of blacks. Well, there's maybe less than 1% Native Americans. Mm -hmm. And how many Native Americans are there in the United States? This is the Native American yeah, country. This is, yeah, America. We, did, we were not, we're the only ones who were not immigrants. Mm -hmm. And anyway. yeah, there's no positions of leadership. I guess they're like, oh, you got the Secretary of the Interior. Like, uh, yeah, what, whatever. Okay, let's go. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I my my guess is that this article may have been written by someone for whom these issues of inequity are extremely important to them. Well, no, I what I think, David. I don't. I, I'll disagree with you. You can say what you want. I'm not saying you're wrong. I say I think <laughs> that the the people writing this are using a format of creating a problem using statistics to create a problem and then provide a solution. And so uh, to me, we are very close to this because you have degrees, you've mm -hmm. been there. And and uh, what they're saying here is trying to create a problem with statistics. Well, we see beyond those statistics. And so 
this this the problem is is much different than what these statistics are illustrating. Yeah. So I, th I think they're just using the normal format of 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 using statistics to 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 raise a problem, to raise an issue so that they will have a, a foundation to move forward with their article. Yeah. So it's real because I mean, OK, let me just say this before we move on. <laughs> um, so on average, black graduates owe 25,000 more in student debt than their white peers. Okay, that's not good. But let me say this. This is what I was thinking when I saw the headline. I didn't think we'd be talking about these issues because whether you owe $100,000 to a private student loan company or 125000 both of those are good cases for maybe you should have gotten an apprenticeship instead of a four-year degree. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, even though there's a racial disparity, that doesn't make apprenticeships a bad idea for a lot of white students who may have an advantage over black students. I think that... <laughs> Very good point, David. Very yeah. good point. Okay, so let's, let's go um, on with the article. This isn't just a matter of grave injustice. The racial wealth gap costs the U.S. economy 1 to 1.5 trillion in GDP output per year. There is financial and moral imperative to do something about it. Um, then there's skill gaps. Now we're getting into the skill gap is where you would, you know, advocate for apprenticeships. For all the belated changes made to academic programs and curricula, and while colleges and universities do as good a job as they've ever done at preparing students with the cognitive and critical thinking skills they'll need to be successful in the long run, the college system just isn't providing the right training for jobs in 2021. Ten years ago, 56% of CEOs were extremely or somewhat concerned by the lack of talent for digital roles. By 2019, this jumped to 79%. This is why well over 50% of new and recent graduates are underemployed in their first jobs out of college, two-thirds of whom may will be underemployed five years later and half a decade later. There must be a better way. The way that empowers young people to achieve in-demand skills while avoiding decades-long burden of student loans, a way that doesn't discriminate based on socioeconomic background, while exposing the talent-hungry employers to a new pool of qualified, driven individuals. In the explosion of ed tech businesses with new approaches, we are in danger of overlooking an established model that can be adapted to save these challenges. That model is apprenticeships. Okay, before we get into it, that's they finally they finally got into what I was saying, but there's no guarantee that the structure of an apprenticeship program won't benefit whites over blacks. That's right. And you could say, look at the disparity in this apprenticeship program. It graduates 15% more whites than blacks. We need a new model. So I don't think that the racial disparity should be the, the impetus for an apprenticeship program. I think the inadequacy of college cost-benefit ratio, I mean, college is good, but if you don't want $200,000 in debt to go out there and get a job and you could do it with an apprenticeship, that's going to be a good option for a lot of people, and regardless of your race. Well, yeah, I, I think that apprenticeship is just one solution. It's not the solution. And in some cases, it's not a sololution. Yeah. I think I think they're simplifying the problem way too much. But I said that's why over, it's over oversimplifying the issue. But I said it's going right. to be a good option for some people. You, you see what I'm saying? That's why I said that. I didn't yeah. say it's 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 not an alter. I mean, it's an alternative for college to college for a small subset of people that go to college, and for a small subset of people that don't go to college. They'd be better served by doing an apprenticeship. Absolutely, I 
I've even told people in my class that, you know, because I've done this for decades. So I and I see these people go through. I, I see hundreds of people a year and I've told students in my office, I say, you shouldn't be here. You really shouldn't be here. You really should start working. Uh, and, I, and I said, the reason is because you're good at it. Do what you're good at. You're not good here. Mm-hmm. You'd be you'd be, you'd be excellent over there. And uh, I'm not say where, because I said that. anyway. You're absolutely right. This is only one answer. Mm-hmm. And also, this answer may not even be the right answer for most people. Yeah, it's true. And maybe, but I think another reason for the statistics is that it may be because universities traditionally and currently are very, very slow to react to things, to, to react to, to movements of, of education, of knowledge, of skills. And the tech area moves extremely rapidly. I mean, uh, back a hundred years ago, uh, th- new things were being developed every 50 years, every 20 to, every 20 to 30 years. And every 50 years, we'll have a breakthrough. Every 20, 30 years, we have we have more tech technology, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, and so uh, when Henry Ford had the assembly line, how long did it take all the automobile industries to have the assembly line? It took it took years and years and decades, right? Yeah. And then, and also, finally, it got overseas. And we're talking about decades. But today, you have, uh, you have something happening in, in Norway, or, or Sweden, or, or South America, or even in Asia, and within weeks, within hours, we'll see it. Within weeks, people will start doing it. Mm-hmm. And so this is going so quickly. The universities are very slow to react, and so there's a good reason why uh, why the the industry is ahead of the universities, and and so that's just the way the world is. Yeah. And I think I think it's not like oh. You know, they're the the. Uh, it's not that the universities are not doing their job; is that they are doing their job, but they're in a in an arena where the game is changing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I'm reminded of. I mean, sometimes in industry they don't even realize this. Um, the people that have computer science degrees and they post online, and it's like I've been trying to get a job, and look at this job posting. And it's like, uh, t- to get this job, you need 10 years of swift programming experience. And it's like, and the thing is, that's impossible for me to comply with that job requirement because I developed the swift programming language seven years ago. Like, I'm the guy that wrote the swift programming language, and I did it seven years ago. So not even I, the guy who invented the swift programming language, have the qualifications to get this job because they're requiring 10 years of swift experience. And and there's a lot of examples like that on the internet. So yeah, there, the employers don't know that you, like you can't have ten years experience, and and they think, oh well, we want someone, and that's the thing. It's like we want ten years in this skill, and it's like that skill's only existed for eighteen months. Uh, I think I think there's another disjoint here, David. There's another big disjoint, is that, and and I I hear this, and it just I and. It breaks my heart. I just have to bite my lip. I go, oh, people don't know, understand what's happening uh, in education. Uh, they say the metric 
for a successful university is how many jobs. It's all about the jobs. And I'm saying, no, that's not it. The purpose of a university is focusing on making people who they are. It's about making better people, better citizens, uh, an informed, uh, a, a formed uh, uh, a culture mm -hmm. and, and, and inform, inform people, uh, educate the people. And I, I tell my students, I say, you come here to learn this stuff, not to know it. Because, and not to make you smart. You're smart before you ever get here. It's just to give you confidence. It's to make you the kind of person that can go out there and be a good citizen of the world. Mm -hmm. And so universities are about the people. It's not about the jobs. Why? Because you can go and just start working as an apprenticeship, apprenticeship and get a job or just start working and learn. Learn on the job, on the job training. So the jobs are a very, very bad um, metric uh, for education in a society. Yeah, like uh, if, if you have an entire society that all they can do is just their job, mm -hmm. okay? And so then basically you have a lot of machines walk, running around, a lot of clones walking around just doing their job. And so someone up here has to make the decisions on how to coordinate all this stuff. And then you're just being used. Like, uh, now, here's my example. It's uh, Cambridge, 17th century. And there's a young student, and his name is Sir Isaac Newton. And he goes to his advisor, and the advisor says, Isaac Newton, what do you want to do here at Cambridge? He's like, oh, I think I'll invent calculus, and I'll discover physics, and I might work on the theory of gravity and uh, develop color science. And his advisor says, listen, the point of Cambridge is to get you a job. An inventor of physics and gravity and color science and calculus is not a job. So we're gonna put you in the engineering program. You can work on mills. How does that sound, Isaac? What would the world have lost if that's what the point of Cambridge University was in the, in the 17th century? Universities have the mission of unlocking human potential. And that should be a tagline. Yep. Unlocking the hum the potential of humanity, human potential. It's not about getting a job. Thank you, David. That was an excellent, excellent example. Mm -hmm. So back to getting a job, the apprenticeship <laughs> movement. There's a lingering perception in America that apprenticeships are the province of construction and building trades or even medieval guilds like smithing and glass building. That's sort of what I said. If you want to be a <laughs> barrel right. maker, you got to. Well, not anymore. We've, while we've been focused on ed tech, that's education technology, that's stuff like uh, Galvanized University or, you know, these coding boot camps, or despairing over the widening skills gap, apprenticeships have been rebooted. Modern tech-driven apprenticeships are emerging as a faster, cheaper, more impactful alternative to higher education. In Europe, tech companies and non-tech companies increasingly hiring entry-level workers with discrete skills are already leveraging apprenticeships to provide a direct route into the labor market for diverse talent. From software engineers to data analysts, the apprentice of the 21st century is as likely to wield a keyboard as a wrench. Fully employed from day one, apprentices earn a wage while they learn on a program that is entirely free to the individual. Their training is delivered alongside their role, with this applied learning approach ensuring relevant skills are tested and embedded right away. 
Part of the challenge presented by the existing system is that college provides a single shot of learning at the start of a career, with a focus on knowledge rather than skills. Like we said, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Instead of time-consuming traditional education models, we should be encouraging companies to focus on training individuals for highly skilled jobs and adapting training as roles shift throughout a lifelong learning journey. Against a college system churning out graduates armed with knowledge of limited applicability in the workplace, apprentices have real work experience and transferable skill sets in the tech and digital spaces. As we write this, tech apprenticeships represent less than 1% of American apprenticeships, while 78% of apprentices are white. But change is in the air. The Biden administration has gone out of its way to highlight tech as a growth area for apprenticeships. The president also announced his commitment to raising apprenticeship standards, starting with casting off industry-recognized apprenticeship programs lacking in quality and training rigor. These aren't just words either. The apprenticeship reboot will be powered by a new National Apprenticeship Act. This proposed legislation commits $3 billion over the next five years to expanding registered apprenticeship programs across a range of industries. If it's done right, tech will be front and center. Okay. Before we move on, uh, I I tell my students, I say, what's the difference between education and training? I say, you can be trained in a skill to do a job. And you can do that with an apprenticeship, or you can do that with uh, certifications, you can do that with going into these into these companies and on the job training. And you know that job, you know mm-hmm. it very well. Education is telling you why you're doing it, and how you can do it better, and how you can change it and how you can replace that with something that's gonna be better. Now, training focuses on one little part. Education broadens it up and looks at the the concept on why you're doing it. So if you know why you're doing it, but you don't know how you do it, you're not gonna be productive in the short term. If you know what you're doing, but you don't know why you're doing it, then you're not going anywhere. You're not gonna be productive in the long term. You're never going to grow. Mm -hmm. And so what they're saying is apprenticeship is going to be the solution of the future. And I'm saying that is just as bad as saying all you need is a knowledge and you'll figure out how to do it on your own. You need both of those things together. Mm -hmm. You need to understand how to do it and you understand why you're doing it so you can make it better. And so there's, there's the Newtons. You have the Isaac Newtons. You have the... The uh, the Bill Gates, he left college to begin building things. Mm-hmm. OK, but you also have the people who actually do it, the tech, the tech people to do it. You also have the people who use that. And I remember when I was in school, they said, OK, now the people who make bees. Uh, who, who have a you know a B student or a C student, you know, they're practical. They're more they're very practical. They, they don't not into the to, to the. Uh, the analytics step that much. Yeah, well, they joked and they said, if you look after they graduate, the A students who understand the technical will be working for the B and the C students who understand uh, the the industry. Yeah. 
Uh, maybe I didn't say that right. But. No, but it, it sort of reminds me of uh, on Fantasy Factory starring Rob Durdeck. It was his show before Ridiculousness, which is the only thing they play on MTV. But he and everyone in the Fantasy Factory took IQ tests. And he was average. And there's people that are his employees that were much higher IQs than him. And I think they didn't have the can-do spirit, like, this needs to get done. They would take more time to think about things. And they might even understand things better than Rob Deerdeck, but they didn't have the personality that was necessary to be the leader. So Rob Deerdeck's average intelligence was the, it was an intelligence that was his leadership quality. His leadership quality was his can-do spirit and, you know, his his desire for adventure and his sort of ability to build a team that had a lot of camaraderie. It was all EQ. It wasn't really IQ. And and I thought that was a very telling episode. Very, very true. Very true. And if you push apprenticeships above education, what you're going to get is people to do their jobs and do their jobs quite well. But then you get the minority of people who choose to go to the university, understand how to do, uh, uh, the, the, get the knowledge and go. It's the Newtons, Isaac Newtons and, the, and uh, the, the scientists. They will look and say, hey, you know, we can replace these jobs with robots. <laughs> and and we, can, we can build these robots then. Mm-hmm. You're not going to learn how to, how to create a new economic system a new production system, a new financial system with an apprenticeship. Apprenticeship tells you what is happening today. Mm-hmm. Education tells you what can happen in the future. Yes. And the possibilities of the future. Although there are instances of someone starting in the mailroom, getting to the factory floor, moving into the offices, and then running a business. They know that business inside and out. That's they right. start by sweeping the floors. They end up on the factory floor. Then they're in the mailroom. Then they're in the offices. And then, you know, they started from the bottom. They started as a dishwasher. Then they own a restaurant empire because yeah. they have that ability to see. I mean, that might not be a knowledge industry like tech. But then you look at Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg. They never finished college. They don't have a bachelor's degree. And they have two of the six biggest tech firms in the world. So... So it tells you that it's not totally necessary. But if you no, want but if you want to be a programmer for Microsoft or Facebook, having a computer science degree from a reputable institution is a good first step. So you can't even get an entry level job even though the CEO doesn't even have a degree. <laughs> yeah, because they they hire people and they 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 need they need uh, people to hire jobs and get people to do these things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, so so the the apprenticeships will create a population of people to do the different jobs that need to be done. Mm-hmm. Some people, okay, let me also say some people, that's exactly what they want. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Apprenticeships are for a lot of people. And so so why would you want an apprenticeship when you could be a Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates? Because you're going to have a happy life. Mm-hmm. You know, don't don't say they're successful and and their workers are not successful. Everybody's successful if they're where you want to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, they, okay, they um, 
they they uh, imply that oh if you get a job then you're successful I, I see a lot of movies that they say oh well uh you have to marry a, a lawyer or a doctor because i want to marry this this guy over here doesn't do anything why ah oh, he doesn't have a good job yet uh, well, you're going to have a happy life, and you're going to make it. You're going to make it work, mm -hmm. and a lot of people have. And and I think that uh, same with education, that there's all different levels. It depends on the personality. I think yeah, and I also, you know, I, I see movies like that too, and I think there's a satisfaction from doing work that's challenging. You know, like having a job that is challenging. Um, but if you think that your happiness is defined by the things that you can buy. Then you're never going to be happy. That's my my opinion. Well, I I would say that people should move to a career that suits their personality mm -hmm. and know yourself. I mean, but if you're only going to be happy if you have a big house and a nice car, you're going to need to choose a career where you make enough money to have a big house and a nice car. If that's the only thing that's going to make you happy. You can realize it. But if you realize, you know, I can drive a, a 2006 Honda Civic and I'll be happy. Um, maybe you don't need to knock yourself out. Like I, there's a guy, Gary V. He's a sort of charlatan uh, motivational speaker on the Internet. And he says, you know, I know people making 80000 a year and they're some of the happiest people I've ever met. They leave their job to make 100000 a year and they become some of the most stressed out, irritable, unhappy people I've ever met. And they think that life's a game where you move up a ladder. But life's not a ladder. Like, sometimes the rung you're on is the right rung to be standing on, and the rung above it will ruin your life. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've turned down things because I thought, no, that's not... Yeah, I, I could do them. Mm -hmm. You don't do things because you can. Know yourself. And you do things because you should. Yes. And it, sometimes you should isn't just because you want to. It's like, I don't want to do this, but I probably should because I'm the best person for it. I may grow as a person. I may learn something. The The struggle of trying to push it through to the end may cause me to come out the other side as a better person. And it's not about I don't want to do it. It's like, of course, I don't want to do it. It sounds like a pain in the ass. But I should do it because I'm the right person at the right time to do this. So you do yeah, you, like I think that's why it's good to say you sh should do things because you should, not because you want to. Because there's a difference between should and want to, don't you think? Absolutely. And should doesn't mean oh I should because I'm the right person for the job. No, I should because it's right for me. Mm -hmm. And right for you might not be. This is going to be so fun from beginning to end. You can say oh this is going to be a pain in the ass from the second I start to the second I end. But I should do it because no one's going to do it for me or. This is a great opportunity, and I see a finite end to it. And when I get through it, I'll be a stronger person than I was before I started. That type of thing. Uh, Thomas Bayes was a status was was a was a minister, and I, I, some of some of our listeners, if they're in, uh, is probably know Bayesian statistics. There's a whole field of Bayesian statistics, which is based on Thomas Bayes. And I love I love the story because Thomas Bayes was a minister. And in his, uh, wherever, whenever he lived, I can't remember what when he lived. But, I'll look uh, it up. Okay. Uh, but he was a minister because he loved statistics. He loved mathematics and statistics, but that was not respected. That was, that was no, don't do that. That's horrible. That's terrible. Be a minister. That's what you should be. So he was. The society forced him to being a minister. So when did he live? 
1702 to 1761. In the 1702, in the early 1700s. Mm-hmm. So he was a minister because that was respectable. Uh, a mathematician, a statistician, uh, actually there wasn't even statistics back then. A mathematician, uh, that, was, that, was, that was not respected. You need to get this job. So he did. But he would go home at night. Nobody saw him by candlelight, by the fire. He worked on statistics because he loved to do it. And he worked on it every single night and he wrote volumes. No one ever knew he did it. And he just kept writing and writing and writing because he just loved to do it. Mm-hmm. After he died, one of his colleagues, someone who was a mathematician, saw these papers, read through them, understood them because he was a mathematician, said, this is awesome. This mm-hmm. is fantastic. This should be published. So two to three years after his death, his friend, I don't remember his name, he published these things. And all of a sudden, the field of statistics in the late 1700s, early 1800s, it was it was an infancy. It began to grow. It began to grow. It began to grow. And today, we have a whole branch of statistics called Bayesian statistics, which the Internet uses for real-time streaming data. Mm-hmm. And it was by this Thomas Bayes who just did it at night. I says, when you find something that you'll do at night when nobody's watching and no, and tells, everyone tells you not to do it, but you do it anyway, even though no one's not watching at night, that's what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good story. Now, you know that Bayesian statistics, I think, is the main technique used in Facebook's knowledge graph. So I'm right. sure that in the 1740s and 50s, Thomas Bayes never thought that his math would destroy the world. <laughs> but should we finish the article real quick? So destroying the world is not the, is not the math. That's just a tool. It's the application, people. yeah. The application of it, yeah. It's like you could say uh, Alfred Nobel invented dynamite he destroyed the world you know he was dismayed at his uh, invention okay let's go to benefit the business all this is welcome good news for businesses and desperate to close gaps as roles evolve at ever faster paces it's becoming more and more difficult to know what a college degree actually says about an individual's ability yes they went to a good school but when half of americans say their degree is irrelevant to their current current role how does prestige translate to jobs let alone ability to perform in the workplace increasingly operating in the dark tech businesses and non-tech managers hiring for tech roles are competing with each other to poach experienced talent into senior roles. It's continuing to fish in a very limited, homogenous pool and an expensive short-term solution. Professional apprenticeships allow business leaders to be more strategic and proactive in their hiring practices. They can mold apprentices to the roles they actually need to fill while focusing on their organization's specific requirements. It beats relying on uniform, outdated education models. Better still, by training apprentices from the start of their career, companies inspire loyalty and eliminate the tricky transition phase recent grads and external hires usually need. Once converted to full-time employees, apprentices tend to persist for twice as long as traditional direct hires. While skills gaps are created by the future racing towards us, racial inequalities are rooted in our past. Professional apprenticeships help break down entrenched structural barriers to careers in industries like tech. 
Most important, they look beyond the degree requirements that screen out 67% of black and 79% of Hispanic Americans because apprenticeships are paid pathways to economic opportunity. They truly level the playing field and allow companies to make genuine advances toward racial equality. Beyond a few neatly crafted Instagram posts, meanwhile, by tapping into diverse talent pools early, businesses can develop individuals and build real recognizable routes to the boardroom. They would be right, too. A 2020 report by McKinsey found companies with the highest diversity earn 35% more than their industry average. Similarly, the share returns of most diverse companies in the S&P 500 outperformed the least diverse by a staggering 240%. A time for change is now. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, 41% of grads end up in roles that don't require a degree. With COVID-19 hitting young workers particularly hard, this figure is set to rise unless we embrace new approaches, including professional apprenticeships and creating a direct and meaningful career pathway for young adults. They can help businesses close skill gaps and hit their much-vaunted diversity targets. There's no single solution to these challenges, but the professional apprenticeship can be education's biggest contribution. And we've completed the article. <laughs> I didn't like the article. I think there's a difference, honestly, to the level of scholarship and journalism and writing in a foreign affairs as opposed to a TechCrunch. TechCrunch is just a blog, and they're probably like, okay, well, we need, let's do a word count. Hold on. Well, go ahead. And let me just say, uh, I don't, I don't want to disparage them, uh, the two people who wrote this. Uh, they wrote it very well. They, they did a fine job saying what they said. Uh, but I think that the difficulty is, is that, that it's, it's very narrow in its scope, and it's, it, the, the actual direction is not as, uh, is not as, uh, the foundation and the implications uh, are are a little bit misleading. Uh, and I don't think I don't think it's their fault. I just they're not in the area. I think they need thirteen hundred words, and so that whole first part about diversity, it's it's sort of cramming a square peg into a round hole, and then they sort of try to bring it back. It's like, and this thing that'll benefit everyone will also benefit diversity, and it's like, okay, but you just said seventy nine percent of Americans in apprenticeship programs are white, so. You know, which one is it? You said the apprenticeship programs suffer from lack of diversity, too. So what's to... I, I get upset when people make an argument and then they propose something that's a good idea and they say, that'll solve this problem. And it's like, no, it won't. You know, you introduce a problem <laughs> and then you talk about a solution that's a solution for something other than the problem that you introduced. Yes. You see, um, now, I don't, yeah, being, being an educator, I, I, I agree with you, David. I, I'm that way too, uh, but and I and I totally agree with you. But when I think of Sophie and Ryan, who wrote Sophie Ruddick and Ryan Craig, who wrote this, I want to encourage them to keep writing, <laughs> but be careful how you write, mm -hmm. and just take take our our critique as support to rethink how you start writing things. Uh, it's a good story. But it's not a right story. Yes. Uh, and so be, be careful. So I, I, wanted, I don't want to discourage them from doing what they did. Yeah. What they did, we find holes. But learn and keep doing what you're doing. Don't stop. <laughs> well, also, you know, the racial inequality, framing things through the lens of racial inequality is fine. And, and it's, I think it's less disingenuous, more ingenuous. It's less disingenuous than sort of framing it as a Republican-Democrat issue. You know, because uh, I, th I think that the problem is 
when you sort of bifurcate the world. Like there's this inequality and something good will lower inequality. So this is a good idea because it will lower inequality. Well, sometimes something good is just good, but not because it will lower inequality. Um, <laughs> what you're saying is, uh, for those, uh, what you're saying is that, that uh, racial inequality, diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI, uh, that's a confounding factor. You can pull that into almost any type of thesis because mm -hmm. it's just part of our culture. And so I think that, yes, it's there, but it may not be uh, one of the primary type factors that need to be focused on. When you talk about apprenticeships and, and education uh, and, and the uh, t uh, technical area, yeah, sure. Diversity is, is part of that, uh, but that's a confounding variable. Focus on the issue. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's true. Like the, what you're trying to accomplish will be good for everyone, not just uh, people of color. Or, you know, like it's a externality. That's what they call it often. Right. Yeah. Like the fact that it might lower uh, racial inequity is a byproduct. It's not the reason you do it. You do it because it's a good idea for everyone. And because it's a good idea for everyone, it stands a chance of lowering racial inequity. But you don't do it to lower racial inequity. And that's sort of where they started their article. It's like, let me give you three or four paragraphs about how bad racial inequity is. Now let's talk about apprenticeships. It didn't track for me. I think they do that because there's statistics. There's a lot of statistics. So it sort of it's makes easy. it compelling. They're, they're doing a number-driven argument. Right. But the, and the numbers are there. The, all the numbers are there. They'll use that. And then they'll, they'll put a put the, their, their article on top of that, but, which... But you know, what, you know what numbers weren't there? Okay, these first few paragraphs were about racial inequity. They didn't say, um, this university, that university, this consulting group, that consulting group said that implementation of apprenticeship programs will lower inequity by X amount. There, there's none of those numbers. It's like, we have this problem, and here's our proposed solution. There's no evidence that our solution will address the problem that we, we posited in the first few paragraphs. It may address a problem other than the problem that we presented, but it may not actually address the problem that we presented. That's right. And I think uh, to write articles like this, be careful mixing, uh, uh, mixing areas. And I think- Tech, be careful mixing diversity. Yes, and it's I think that's what's infuriating to me about watching the news. So if you watch CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, it's yep. all filtered through partisan politics. And sometimes people do stuff because it's a good idea. They do stuff out of the kindness of their heart. And sometimes people don't care about Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And so like this person donated a bunch of money to little kids um, in orphanages. It's like, well, are they a Democrat or a Republican? It's like, who cares? <laughs> you know, it's like uh, the story is that they did something good. It's not, let's filter it through the lens of partisan politics. And so I think this article sort of had this idea, like we're going to talk about apprenticeships and say that it's the solution to racial inequity in tech. And I didn't quite get that connection. You can't just front load a bunch of facts about how there's a problem that exists 
and then propose a solution and not connect it to the problem that you proposed and say, we solved it. Racism's over. Um, apprenticeships. Uh, when Martin Luther King said, I had a dream, what he meant was tech companies would have apprenticeships. <laughs> well, I think I think a bigger issue here, uh, apart from this article, is in this area, is that where is education going? Mm-hmm. What is the future of universities? How can you support uh, the the tech explosion uh, of of rapid development? Uh, the the actual amount of data that that is exploding right now is how do you handle that data? How do you how do you assimilate the data? How do you collaborate the data? How do you analyze the data? And what are the new models that are coming out now to actually generate the data? And those skills are there, but the results do not exist because mm-hmm. you need skills not at the the level they're talking about. You need skills, higher skills, to create new solutions to these problems that we see. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and that the problems. So where is that future? Uh, so that's probably you're right. Uh, an article. On the other hand, what this article did it made us think think about this issue. Yeah, it's true. Bit. Very true. This, but what I'm saying, that should be an article maybe in a, in a tech journal like Foreign Affairs or something with with a tech area. Yeah, saying, that's that's more about scholarship and less about sort of uh, I grabbing headlines. You know, TechCrunch it's a journalistic site. They want you to click on the site. And then you read through. You're not supposed to sort of parse it as hard as we do foreign affairs. And we are. <laughs> yeah, and we're doing it. We're parsing it. Yeah, and so that's probably not fair to, to Sophie and Ryan. Yes. I don't want to discourage them from not writing. I want them to keep writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but be very careful what you write. Because you do have a responsibility uh, when you write these things, a, a big responsibility and one thing is about being correct, and I'm sure their statistics are correct, but the other thing is the implications from your writing. You've got to be very careful what is being implied mm-hmm. from what you write. And so just like you said, David, uh, you got angry because you saw the implication was, oh, this is a solution. It's not. Uh, it, it is, it's, it's really showing the problem yeah. and showing multiple problems and how they work together. We'll state that. Uh, don't say it's a solution when it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I just, my, I just taught the other day and said, when you say anything, only say what you know and don't say what you don't know. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's real simple. And don't allude and don't let things uh, go in a direction that you don't understand. Yeah. Only say what you know. That's why when I I feel bad when we started the article, I thought it was going to be about apprenticeships. I don't really like talking about racial equity because I know that there's people that that's at the front of their mind and they have control of the facts and they have control of the language around it. And I'll probably end up saying something that offends them inadvertently. Um, and so it's like, I'd rather just not talk about it at all. But... Uh, it's fascinating that someone that understands the issues, understands the language around it, the, the culture of, you know, pushing for greater equity, inclusion, diversity, and understands the numbers of, you know, 14% of this race has less opportunity than 12% of this race, and you start talking to them, they'll immediately get offended. And it's like, no, you need to be working with the same set of numbers, the same set of facts, the same set of jargon, and the same viewpoint as me, 
or else you're wrong. And it's like, okay, well, I don't understand this stuff. So I think, like you're saying, it's difficult to talk about stuff you don't understand. Anything I said at the front that might have been offended, offensive, like it's because I don't understand this stuff. So if you heard me say anything and you want to take me to task <laughs> for it, please instead let's engage in a dialogue and help me understand your viewpoint. I think another issue that I want to say to, to, these, to Sophie Ruddick, Ryan Craig, and TechCrunch is that I would say, rewrite this article, rewrite it, take this diversity stuff out and, and start with, here is the explosion of technology. Here is the need in technology. Here are the universities that are supplying that need. Here is a disjoint. And how should that be? How should that be narrowed? Mm -hmm. That's the issue. That's the issue looking at the industry and looking at the universities and say, how can they come together? That's the article. And you can start with statistics. You can start with that, but don't start with, with over here to try to inflame something because the people who have, like you said, who have uh, a lot of, lot of uh, a passion in the uh, diversity and equity area, they're not going to hear anything about the tech crunch. Mm -hmm. that's, all, that's all they hear. And so you've just moved them away, and they'll never they'll never come back. Or, or they'll or they say rewrite the article. Or people without critical thinking skills will say, "Yeah, racial inequity is a problem." But I read this article the other day that says we can solve it if we just have apprenticeships instead of college degrees. That's right. People will walk away from this article with that opinion because that's, right. that's sort of the the gloss of it. Well, you know what? I think that your point is well taken. And I think we should end on your point because you're giving them constructive advice on how to frame this issue perhaps more constructively in the future, right? Right. So right. Ta take the issue, take the problem, take the inadequacy of a college degree to current tech careers and look at how education works, how tech works, and sort of then apply apprenticeship as a means of solving that problem. And I think that advocating for a solution like that is a good place to stop, don't you? <laughs> yes. And I just want to say higher education is to is to unleash the potential of the human potential. It is not creating jobs. Mm -hmm. So I think we can end the episode there. Is there something you'd like to say before we sign out? Sons of Sequoia, that's our podcast. And we say keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying see you later everyone bye